Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Heckbelt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Samit Mehta, and he is founder of Mazakali. And we're going to talk a little bit about his background in finance and his entrance into the cannabis world. We're going to talk a little bit about what he sees in cannabis and cannabis investment and where the industry is going. So, Samit, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having me. So I always like to start with a little bit of kind of personal, professional background. So tell us, before you got in the cannabis space, what were you doing? And then we can talk a little bit about your entrance into cannabis. Sure thing. I spent 20 years on Wall Street. I started at Merrill Lynch in 96, and I left uh, JP Morgan in 2016. And uh, through those years, I focused my efforts on investments and investment opportunities around the world. Any, any particular types of investments or sectors, industries, geographies that you had particular experience in? We were looking at the tech space in the 90s. I was a technology analyst for a mutual fund, and that was a a big part of our focus from 96 through the first dot-com crash. Uh, We then shifted our our focus to international, the international space. I spent some time in Singapore and Malaysia in the early early part of the the century, and then then moved on, on to real estate, certainly looked at the the whole mortgage boom before the bust, got into craft beer, spent a few years uh, in the craft beer space with uh, from an investment standpoint and also from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Yeah. And uh, then finally shifted focus again in 2013 to cannabis. Yeah. Yeah. So craft beer was, you know, another one that kind of grew dramatically, particularly in the U.S., you know, in that in that time period. Um, I I guess. So do you see I mean, I was cannabis for you. you know, yet just another market that um, was on the on the edge of growth, on the edge of you know, kind of this uh, rapid expansion. 
how did you choose cannabis or how did cannabis choose you? Tell, tell us a little bit about the story. Well, one of the investors in my, so I launched a brewery in Chicago yeah. and one of the investors in my brewery came back to me and told me that he was looking at cannabis uh-huh. and that I should take it, take a look at it as, as well. So I started taking a look at the space and certainly when I first started taking a look, it was all about growth and all about investment and all about ROI. Yeah. I found that that changed pretty rapidly, and it was less than two years later uh, that I left a 20-year career to join the cannabis industry full-time. Yeah. But yes, when I first started looking at it, it was uh, it was definitely from an investment, a pure investment lens. Yeah, and I'm always kind of curious where people's kind of, you know, I guess kind of personal take on cannabis mm-hmm. was, you know, when, when they started kind of getting involved. You know, I, I think there's obviously a kind of a mixed history of cannabis in kind of U.S. culture, U.S. politics. Where where were you? Where where was cannabis in your kind of you know personal sphere? Your understanding of it, you know, uh, before you got too involved on the investment side. So Bruce, I I don't know if you're aware, but I, I spent a significant number of years in India, and when I grew up in India, there was not the stigma that there is here. Yeah. Cannabis is very much a part of Indian culture, part of Indian history, a part of Indian religion, and a part of Indian medical practice. As it has been mentioned in the Atharva Veda since the since 2200 BC, and has since been used in the Ayurvedic medicinal practice, and in fact, modern Ayurvedic doctors will share that there are north of 385 formulations that include cannabis that were created thousands of years ago. So I didn't have the stigma. I did not have any of the the propaganda shoved uh, shoved into my face. <laughs> exactly. And as a result, it was uh, another herb and a useful plant and a, uh, a very attractive vegetable for hu- the human race from multiple yeah. perspectives. Yeah. Do you think that gave you a, a bit of an advantage of being able to see kind of the the business and the opportunity and where where this industry could go over you know other investors or or people who you know were maybe coming out of traditional businesses and had a more you know conservative or had that propaganda you know in in their kind of upbringing and things you know that allowed you to kind of see it better for what it really was? I mean, there was this. Do you see this as an advantage or was it kind of the way it was for you? I think it may have been. Certainly, I believe that when your roots run deep, your tree can grow tall. And when I think about the 5,000-year history of this plant, I also think about how, moving forward, uh, we will come to a point where we look back at this 82-year period of prohibition as a complete suspension of rational thought. And so when I think about cannabis, when I thought about all of the good it has done for thousands of years, it did not make sense that we would put each other in cages for having a relationship with the plant. And I saw that the, the beginning of the end was near, the end of prohibition. And that was an exciting, exciting place to be. Yeah. yeah. I, and I think that uh, a lot of what's happening in the industry is that kind of awakening or that, that kind of rethinking for a lot of folks, both, both individually and as a sort of culture and society uh, around the plant and it's how it's framed, how it's used, how it's managed. Where do you think we are on this kind of process or the spectrum? Is this, we're still kind of very early? Are you seeing this as really being kind of the, the beginning of the trend? Are we in the thick middle of it? I mean, where do you think the possibilities are with, with the industry and the plant? Well, I don't think it's a trend. So I don't think we're in the beginning okay. of any kind of trend. I think it's a return to normalization. And I think that, again, the last 80-year period yeah. has been an aberration. So I, in terms of where we are, I'll, I'll answer your question from a couple of different perspectives. Yeah. From a political standpoint, we are very much 
towards the end of prohibition. In fact, I suspect we will see effective federal legalization as early as next year with full federal legalization possible by 2021. From a societal perspective, I think that a lot of the stigma around the plant has begun to wear off. In fact, it's been dropped in in at least the 32 states that have allowed for medical use and the dozen or so states that have allowed for adult use. And that, that changing of the stigma and propaganda continues to proliferate across the country in a very positive manner. From a, a religious use standpoint, I don't really know that I have a lot to say about it, except for the fact that there are many religions that use cannabis and use it in a very spiritual way. And from a medical use perspective, I think there's a long, a long ways to go, but we are seeing the early and very powerful images and reports of children and the elderly that have, and everyone in between, frankly, uh, that have benefited from this plant when traditional medicine or allopathic medicine was not able to help them. I can go on with industrial uses and environmental uses and social justice uses and cognitive liberty uses, but that, those are those are several of the <laughs> areas in which yeah. cannabis is able to impact our society. We can do. We can probably have a series of podcast episodes on some of these. Before we get into the investment side, because that's I'm I'm very curious what you've been doing there. Practically, I do notice just in your kind of background and your profile here that you've done a lot of work with uh, marijuana policy project with uh, students for sensible drug policy. Uh, NCIA. I mean, I guess, do you, do you see for your kind of involvement in this, is this more than just kind of the business person seeing business opportunity and really seeing this as having a responsibility and want to make an impact on kind of the whole kind of uh, adoption by culture and society? I mean, I guess, how do you, how, how do you see your purpose in the, in the business right now or in the, in the industry of cannabis? Yeah. So when I started looking at the space in 2013, I was looking at it from a pure business lens and a pure investment lens. And I started making investments as a result of that view in 2014 in uh, Oregon and in Colorado. And in 2015, I came into California from, again, from an investment standpoint. But by 2016, I realized a couple things. One, I'd only been making cannabis investments. And two, that this was not just an industry, it was a movement. And it was not just enough for me to look at this from an ROI perspective. It was imperative that I looked at it for all of the wonderful things that it does to various parts, not just of our lives, but also the lives of our, our animals, our plants and our planet. And when I had that holistic realization, I also realized it wasn't just enough for me to put my money in this industry. It was also imperative that I add my time and effort. So with that epiphany, I left JP Morgan and a 20-year career to join the industry full-time. I have been working with many groups, and I have worked with groups, including Canopy and ArcView as well. And I believe that as we are all coming together and utilizing all of the lessons we learned from the plant for business decisions, we can make much better business decisions and we can do well and do good at the same time. And that's very important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the fascinating and sort of interesting and meaningful parts of this whole industry is that it is it is more than just investment. I mean, I think most people that are involved here have kind of a bigger picture or bigger vision for kind of the benefit and the impact that you can have as a participant here more than just, you know, being a good kind of entrepreneur or a, a CEO, a leader from a business point of view. So walk us through. So you so you left JP, you were kind of you know looking at the investment side. How did you kind of navigate the process of getting involved with different organizations? How did you pick the organizations? How have you kind of laid the path for, for yourself in terms of getting involved? And, and where have you seen it work well? And maybe where have you sort of seen things not work so well? Sure. The process of transition was uh, fairly straightforward. I'd been working with uh, within the ArcView group for many years. That's 
how I got into the industry and that's how I started making my first investments. And when I mentioned to Troy Dayton, uh, the founder of ArcView, that I was thinking about leaving Wall Street, he was very supportive and encouraging and in fact asked if I would come on as director of finance slash interim CFO for the first uh, for, for a few months until we hired a replacement. So that allowed me to leave JP, step into ArcView, ended up spending about six months working on finance for ArcView while also launching Mazakali. And then as we hired a replacement for me that could do it full time, I was able to transition into into my work at Mazakali. Got it. And any particular area of the cannabis industry that you, the sort of area of the industry that you've been focused on in terms of types of companies, you know, stage of company, give us a little bit of a sense of where you've where you focus your efforts. Focus my efforts on the private space. That focus has evolved over time as the industry has changed. As we are looking now at the industry, I can share that in the supply chain or the plant touching part of the industry, the areas of the biggest area of focus for us is brands. We're not a um, uh, we're not under any illusion that cannabis is an emerging market. And as such, it exhibits a lot of the characteristics that are common amongst emerging markets. Those characteristics include fragmentation. And as emerging markets mature, they tend to move towards an oligopolistic structure. So we expect that there's a lot of consolidation coming, and there's also a lot of commoditization of various parts of the supply chain. So as I think about where one can generate value over time, it is in mindshare that ends up being able to help capture wallet share. And that mindshare is from a branding perspective. So that's a lot of our focus on the plant touching side. On the ancillary side of the business, we look for scalable opportunities, ones that are not trying to compete with the big boys in a way that they will eventually get wiped out for when the multinationals are allowed to play. So big data, genomics, robotics, machine learning, machine vision, all of that is sort of a collection of spaces that are ripe for a lot of innovation and innovation that's driven by the margins that this plant affords us. Uh, we're not as interested in, in mobile payments or any anything banking related yeah. that will eventually get wiped out likely the day that guys like JP Morgan decide to come into the space. Yeah, and it's a, I think you're bringing up uh, uh, you know kind of a the situation, you know, because of the federal illegality that you know, creates this kind of open playing field for a period of time in a lot of these spaces where, you know, the big players don't want to come in because they don't want to taint their their businesses uh, dealing with, you know, cannabis that is federally legal. Um, but but I, I think everyone is pretty much anticipating that soon as it does, and I, I think you mentioned earlier that you're projecting you know, the end of the end of next year or the beginning of next year, you know, having some kind of movement on the federal side, the moment that does, it's going to change many of these businesses and, uh, you know, either, you know, coming in and wiping them out, you know, bringing in their, their services and products into the space or kind of a mass, you know, acquisition mode. I mean, I, I guess, do you see, I guess, how do you see that playing out? I mean, there's various parts of this cannabis space that, you know, some can be solved by, existing companies and they're just not doing it because they don't want to they don't want to touch it right now other places maybe not so much that there really is some unique areas of cannabis that you know a, a pharmaceutical company isn't going to be able to just come in and and replace it completely do you see you know companies kind of positioning themselves for acquisition and and you know when that happens or i, I guess how do you advise companies in terms of dealing with this pending federal legalization and how that's going to impact them yeah we've seen a similar movie before this is just 
playing in a different theater at this time. I do expect that as we approach federal legalization, we will see a massive wave of consolidation, one that will only be eclipsed by a bigger wave of consolidation after legalization. So as we are looking from an entrepreneurial lens in this industry out towards legalization, we only see one of three options for every company in the in the industry. Okay. You're either strong enough to get purchased. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you're either strong enough to stand on your own in a fully federal federally legal environment. Okay. Or you're attractive enough to get purchased or you get wiped out. Okay. And as we saw a 90% decline in the tech space post the first crash and a similar decline in the home builders post the mortgage crash, I expect to see a very similar number for for the cannabis space as well. So a large number of companies will not survive full federal legalization. And they understand that if they're they're not attractive enough, they have to be strong enough. And in order to be strong enough, it is helpful to band with others that can that can boost your strength. That is what's driving what I'm going to say is the very beginning of an M&A cycle in our industry. Yeah. And we're starting to see M&A pick up in certain sectors. I suspect it will pick up in more. And as we go into legalization, we will see a seismic change in the complexity and fragmentation that is so that is so prevalent today in our industry. Yeah. You mentioned this focus on brands, uh, you know, brand recognizable known brands, trusted brands, you know, are going to be important in surviving this kind of consolidation or at least surviving or, or defining that those brands that make it on their own versus those brands that have to kind of go through an acquisition. I could have a strong, viable business, but if I don't have a, a good brand, recognizable brand to be able to stand on my own, I'm kind of forced into an acquisition, but like I'm not going to be able to survive competing against other known brands coming into the space. Is that how you're kind of seeing the bifurcation of this process looking? Absolutely. It's extremely difficult, if not uh, nearly impossible for most to compete with the likes of S.E. Johnson or Procter & Gamble. It's also extremely difficult to compete with J.P. Morgan or ADP or State Farm. So if you have businesses that are in that space, they they can either be helped by regulations i.e. if you have a certain license that is difficult to get, then it is more likely that it will be bought and you will be bought with it. But if you don't have a business that is helped by regulation and you're just competing in a, in a free-flowing economy, then you're currently enjoying a very nice current in the moat around the cannabis <laughs> castle that's been caused by this federal-state conflict. Uh, but as soon as that moat, uh, as soon as the, the floodgates open and the feds blow the whistle, then uh, yes, the athletes are ready and the field is open for play. Yeah, and then it's just going to be a open season, open season on cannabis companies in that respect. So in terms of building brands, I mean, I guess, what do you see in terms of, I guess, brands that are out there that are potentially, you know, able to survive that or, or, or taking an approach to build themselves to be able to survive that? I mean, are these brands that we're seeing right now, or do you think this is new brands that are going to be forming and uh, establishing themselves for this purpose? I think a few brands might survive. I think a lot more brands will be formed. Let's not forget that Google as a search engine was launched in the fifth year of search engines. And for the first five, we had to live with the likes of Lycos and Alta Vista. <laughs> Alta Vista, oh yeah, I remember them, remember them well. Or Ask Jeeves. Yeah. So we are in 2019 in roughly the fifth year of legalization in even the most mature states in the country. Yeah. So we have barely begun to scratch the surface of what true branding is like. And if you ask most cannabis consumers, their relationship to the plant is through strain, not through brand. Yeah. And that's not true for any other product we consume. So that mindset will change. And as it changes, those companies that can continue to provide a high quality at a reasonable price huh. and not have the issues we've seen throughout the industry with their products and with testing, et cetera, 
have the best chance of survival. And uh, one other thing I'll add is that if we are looking at how this industry is being built, it's being built on a state and county level. There are very few multi-state operators, mm-hmm. but they are increasing. And therefore, you don't have as much of a uh, as much of an easy path to national branding as you might in a in an industry that is not handcuffed uh, by state and county lines. I guess, do you see these multi-state operators, though? Or do you see people that are that are starting to be able to build a brand across state lines or, or across these different markets? Uh, there's certainly some brands that have national recognition. Those okay. are primarily brands that uh, are being touted by major media and by Wall Street because of, uh, because of lots of uh, opportunity that uh, in the public sphere they provide. But let's also not forget that while there are 32,000 businesses in cannabis, the vast majority are private. And if we have less than 300 companies that are public, then the the opportunities, the growth, and the fuel for the industry is all being provided primarily in the private space. Yeah, yeah, and it's an interesting conundrum for the industry or for the for the market is figuring out how do I get you know how do I get capital, how do I get the investment on this stuff. I mean, I guess do you see do you see the the capitalization side as being still kind of a challenge? I mean, everyone talks about how much money there is in the cannabis in the kind of cannabis industry. Like you you've got a cannabis business, and you just kind of walk around and you know you'll be able to find money in left and right. Is that really true, or is that are you finding that companies still are struggling with? getting the right capital and the right kind of structure to help them be successful? Well, we started this uh, talk, Bruce, with you You coming up with extra topics for future, uh, for future talks. <laughs> and one of, those, one of those might be the top myths in the industry. And I would add to the top five myths that the, pre, the, the myth, or the, at least a statement, that the streets of cannabis are paved with gold. Yeah. So no, the capital is not plentiful. In fact, the opposite is true. Yeah. And there is a very large shortage of capital in the space. We forecast or we we understand that shortage to be in the range of 80%. Wow. So we believe that yeah. the industry has an 80% unfunded capital need. And if we were able to bring more capital into the industry, the growth of the industry would only be helped in a very tremendous way. Yeah, that's big. I mean, I think that, you know, for folks listening, uh, I, there are a lot of folks listening I know that are you know seasoned business folks, entrepreneurs outside of the kind of space that are looking to kind of get involved. And one of the reasons that there's a lot of kind of interest is because there's a lot of hype around the capital side of it. And so I think getting clear or getting you know understanding that as an entrepreneur, as a business person looking to be in a high growth situation, that the capital is not just kind of falling from the skies, that this does take work and finding the right people and the right partners for that capital can be a big challenge. I mean, I guess, where do, where do people find capital right now? Like, what are the sources if you're an early stage company looking to grow and looking to fund its expansion? Yeah, that's a, that's a, great, uh, that's a great question or a great topic. So let's, uh, let's think about how capital has come into the space and what capital is not in the space that could be or will be over time. When we think about or when we look at statistics from March of 2014, 92% of companies were self-funded. That number in March of 2016 dropped to 72%, with a lot more companies opening up in 2016 than did in 2014. So that was the first indication we saw of a healthy amount of outside capital coming in. Where that capital's come from has changed tremendously over the years as well. The initial capital in this industry was largely provided by friends and family and by angel investors. In fact, uh, we both both, uh, discussed the Orkview Group earlier, and that's a group that's been around for eight years, is comprised of angel investors, and has put over $200 million into the industry. If I look at the largest cannabis dedicated fund 
in the country today, it is not north of $200 million. Yeah, that's not very so big. Yeah. It's not very big. In fact, it's a drop in the bucket for an industry that's $12 billion today and growing at 27%. Yeah. As that angel group investment continued to grow, we also started seeing the next stage of capital come in, and that was from family offices. We saw family offices and some dedicated funds come into the industry. What we have not seen is the big banks. We have not seen the big pension funds. We have not seen true institutional capital. And as the floodgates open for that capital, there's going to be a tsunami of capital coming in that is going to be very healthy for some businesses and potentially very unhealthy for others. The other big area of growth from a capital perspective is credit. There simply aren't enough banks lending. And as a business, If I have to peel out equity every time I want capital and the cost of equity is much higher than the cost of debt, then I'm doing my business a disservice that I would not ordinarily do if I had access to credit as businesses do in in every other sector in this country. So, yeah, I mean, let's just recap that because I think that that's an important point. So because the capital is limited, you know, that that's timing growth, but more importantly, because it's coming mostly through equity and because and, it's hard to get debt financing for these companies. And this is mainly because, you know, most of these groups, the traditional kind of debt financing structures can't touch cannabis or is this because they're just like that part of the market's not matured yet? I mean, what's driving the, the hindrance or the limitation there? The reticence for lenders to get involved in the space is a large part of what's driving it. The okay. inability for banks to lend into the space is also a large part of what's driving it. A traditional credit line can be issued on a personal guarantee, which is still possible, or on real estate collateral, which is largely possible. However, with accounts receivable financing and with other forms of financing, it's extremely difficult to to get access to those credit lines. So unless one is willing to put up a personal guarantee or has real estate involved, and even with those, it can be very difficult, access to credit is simply not, generally speaking, available. And as that credit increases or that credit availability increases, we'll see more of a normalization between debt and equity, and we'll see balance sheets look very different than they do today. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it kind of skews the whole capitalization on the balance sheet for most of these companies. So federalization happens, uh, federal legalization happens. Who do you think are going to be the winners and who do you think are going to be the losers? I mean, what are the things that are going to indicate how well someone survives this federal legalization from a kind of access to capital point of view? From an access to capital point of view, the folks that will survive legalization are the ones that are able to get the right kind of capital to be able to grow their businesses to withstand the onslaught of large corporates. As we discussed earlier, all of these businesses are waiting to come in. There's no doubt in my mind that big ag, big food, big liquor, big pharma, big tobacco, big entertainment, big hospitality, the list goes on, are all going to step in the second they're allowed to. And when that happens, the vast majority of small businesses are going to get, unfortunately, get wiped out. There's just not a way they can compete. So access to capital is extremely important, and it's important to have access to capital sooner than later so that we have the opportunity to build our businesses the right way and so that we have the opportunity to gain and garner enough market share such that in a fully legal environment, we're not facing a premature demise. Yeah, yeah. It just seems like sort of building a defensible position, you know, for this for this occurrence has got to be it's got to be on your strategic plan. Like if you don't have some strategy for how you're going to deal with this, then it's going to deal with you, and that is most likely going to be wiping you out. You know, whether that's immediately or painfully over uh, a couple of years, 
you know, I think a lot of these, a lot of these folks are going to be in trouble. But I guess, do you see that, is there room for kind of niche plays in some of this? I mean, even if, you know, these big companies kind of come in, like if you have a good, well, kind of articulated brand, got a good audience, you've got a niche position, is that defensible? Is that, is that an area that at least, I mean, you may not see, you know, rocket ship growth once federalization comes in, but, you know, at least you could build a successful business around that. I mean, are there opportunities there still? I think there's a lot of room for a, uh, for niche players to play. I think that there's a, when you have an industry that is as large as ours and is growing as quickly as ours is and has the potential to grow to a size that ours has, there's opportunity for everyone. There's opportunity for lots of different types of niche services. And there's opportunity for both businesses that cater to the masses as well as those that are highly specialized. Yeah. So yes, I see I see that there's plenty of plenty of growth and plenty of opportunity. If there was a cautionary tone in my voice in the previous couple of answers, uh, it's just that we need to be prepared for what is coming uh, and not surprised by it. Yeah, well, I, I think that the, the summary on that is uh, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And I think any, any company in this space has to have something something in their plans that deals with that because it's uh, you know it is, it is coming you know whether it's next year the year after or the year after that it, it will happen and, and it will impact things uh, you know so Samit, one question I have is um, you know we've talked a lot about the big banks about these big players you know how you know we're, those are big uh, professional investors how can we get more kind of the general population involved in this industry you know we need all this capital how, how can how can people participate uh, that's a great uh, that's a great area Bruce and it's one that I've been thinking about and working on for quite some time and a big focus of mine is is to essentially democratize cannabis investment opportunity part of that in is part of that involves finding the best opportunities and the other part involves bringing those to people to take advantage of and so one of the projects we've been focused on for the past six months is a project that absolutely allows that to occur and that is a combination of our broker dealer and our legal partner working with us to diligent the best cannabis opportunities. And the other part of that is to have our, we have a tech team and a, and a development team, and we are launching a platform with all these teams in place that allows folks to come onto the platform, get educated, get inv- advised, and get invested into the cannabis space. So this is real, like, I guess, what level of investor do I need to be to be able to participate on this platform? You will have to be an accredited investor to be able to participate. And we are also looking at ways in which we can utilize the freedom that we've gotten from the Jobs Act to bring that, to bring the opportunity even even further yeah. into the uh, into society. Yeah. For those not familiar, the Jobs Act uh, basically loosened up or, or created an ability for those people that are, who are not necessarily accredited investors, and there's a whole definition of that, to be able to participate. On, on in these kind of investments on, on an equity basis. It's a little different. The structure is a little different, but it does give you the same kind of ability to participate, which I think is great because I think one of the, the things this facilitates is really kind of bringing more people into the space, not only from a volume point of view, but people that otherwise would not, would never have the ability to participate in this as an investment or as an equity play to get them involved. Because I think that's going to help not only raise capital, but it's going to help really you know, make this work from a society point of view. I think it will it will create some opportunities. Um, so we're going to hit time here, but I want to make sure if people want more information uh, about you, about the work that you're doing, have questions, what's the best way to get a hold of you or get more information? Yeah, our website, uh, mazakali.com, has uh, has a ton of information and also has, uh, has our contact info. 
So that's the best way to get get in touch with us. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time. And we'll uh, I'll plan on scheduling another episode with you in about uh, a year, and we'll see if, if the <laughs> legalization has happened, and we'll kind of discuss it then. But this was uh, a pleasure. I, I really appreciate your time and the expertise. It's great talking to you, Bruce. Thanks for having me on your show. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.